This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Good afternoon. Uh, you're very welcome to this afternoon's seminar. I'm um, part of the Transitional Justice Institute's series of seminars this year uh, to mark 20 years since the adoption of Resolution 1325 by the US Security Council. Uh, my name is Catherine O'Rourke and I'm uh, the director of the TJI. I'm also convening uh, this seminar series. Um, so for those of you who um, aren't familiar with the series, just to make you aware that we've um, already had a number of events that have looked at sort of global themes around uh, WPS. So we've had a seminar series looking at, uh, we've had a seminar looking at uh, queering WPS, uh, women mediators and WPS, uh, masculinities, um, violence against women. And we have further seminars scheduled um, for the next academic year in October, um, looking at issues like children's rights and postcoloniality. Um, the seminars have all been recorded and are available to podcast. Um, so if you go to our seminar webpage, uh, which is ulster.ac.uk forward slash WPS20, um, you can access all of that information and details. Um, so as I say, the resolution, the, the series is to mark 20 years of the resolution. Um, it seems timely really to reflect on uh, its successes, um, limitations, um, and, and indeed how it's played out in different places. Um, so whilst the series to date is focused on more global issues, um, today's seminar is a really welcome opportunity to reflect on the local significance of 1325 um, and what it's meant here. Um, now, of course, Northern Ireland is um, sort of an interesting, perhaps curious case study on 1325 um, in all sorts of ways. Um, so the Good Friday Agreement uh, was adopted prior to the adoption of the initial resolution, um, though by international standards, and certainly at the, particularly at the time of 1998, uh, was regarded, regarded as a leading example of women's inclusion um, and with, for women's participation um, embedded in the agreement. Um, I think it's fair to say that now, 22 years down the road, uh, the agreement has had kind of mixed gender outcomes and uh, just and many of the issues, um, many gender issues remain unaddressed, um, outstanding from the conflict. Um, there's also been particular tensions around the application of the resolution uh, to the North. Uh, so whilst the government of the Republic of Ireland has embraced the resolution and the idea that it should be applied domestically, um, including in its um, activities around the North, uh, the UK government has resisted its application to Northern Ireland um, has said publicly in UN fora that it does not consider the uh, resolution applying here um, due to contestation over the status of the conflict. Um, what makes Northern Ireland curious and interesting, I think, by international standards is that uh, whilst the UK has adopted that position, um, actually uh, other UN institutions like the CEDAW committee um, have been very clear that the resolution should be applied in the North um, that uh, they've made that issue repeatedly and in fact the first time CEDAW ever raised 1325 for those of you who are interested and um, was in respect of here um, in the north. Um, likewise the UN Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women has raised the issue with the UK about the failure to apply 1325 to the north. 
Um, and we also live in this kind of curious virtual reality where we have political parties resisting uh, the application of 1325 whilst also participating in an all-party group um, in the Assembly on Women, Peace and Security. So that kind of uh, particular kind of legal and political status of the resolution has made it, it's made it um, an interesting subject of study, but um, it's also in many ways in marked contrast to the reality of women's mobilization here in the North. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's fair to say that 1325 has been embraced very actively uh, by the local women's sector. Uh, it's been um, engaged with at least by the human rights sector, by the victim sector. Um, and that has been really kind of irrespective of disputes over its legal status or application. Um, and it's really because of those, because of the breadth and depth of local engagement with 1325 that um, I was very keen that we have a seminar that sort of discussed these issues specifically as they relate here. Um, I suspect that Northern Ireland is, is unique in, in internationally in um, the level of awareness and understanding around 1325 across women's activists. Um, to the point where in the annual International Women's Day March, you'll all be aware of the Implement 1325 poster. And uh, I think an awareness that whilst there is dispute perhaps over the formal status of 1325 and its application here, um, there is a fairly shared sense of commitment to the spirit of 1325. Um, so those, these are all issues that, uh, and many others, um, that I hope will be addressed uh, through today's discussions. Um, and we have indeed a I think a really interesting perspective. So Andre Murphy is going to uh, start us off today. Um, Andre is Deputy Director of Relatives for Justice. Uh, she's also involved um, with me and many others in the Legacy Gender Integration Group, which has looked for the integration of gender throughout dealing with the past processes here in the North. Um, she's also, and I'm going to add this uh, to your profile, Andre, uh, you're also a TJI graduate. Uh, she's a graduate of our LLM program, uh, one of our distinguished graduates. So I'm going to uh, thank Andre for, for joining us and um, I'll uh, let you take over. Oh, thanks a million, Catherine. Um, and I'm absolutely delighted to be able to be part of this. Uh, basically, if TJI asked me to do anything, I'll absolutely do it at any time because I'm so indebted to yourself and, and TJI. Um, I've been asked to look, uh, and we, all three of us have been asked to look at um, how 1325 featured in our work and if we found it valuable, what the limitations might be, and then kind of think about what, um, you know, what else might be needed. So I'm going to go through that in a bit of a journey. Um, it, and it's kind of, it, it's sort of organisational and also personal because um, it's it, it has been an interesting, particularly 10 years for me, in terms of when I came to it. I work in Relatives for Justice. We support people who've been bereaved or injured during the conflict in very practical ways from providing services like uh, counselling, complementary therapies, social support, right through to supporting people with legal advocacy needs in terms of dealing with the past and outstanding truth and justice issues. So um, my involvement in Relatives for Justice came in 1999 when um, I began working voluntarily for it and kind of be with the organisation have grown in both my role and contribution. Um, so and most of our work has been framed by human rights, but in particular, Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights. So it's very much around the circumstances in which people have been killed and um, who might be responsible and finding um, avenues of redress for those killings. 
Um, and, and we would be well known as an organisation involved in, in those particular issues, particularly around issues of outstanding um, state violations and, and collusion. Um, but during that journey um, around supporting people, we have seen additional harms. It isn't somebody doesn't come in the door to relatives for justice and only have the perspective of someone who's been perhaps bereaved or injured, and that single dimensional approach to recovery. It, it is a much wider scope of supporting people, and I think. Um, we, we, we've done well in terms of supporting that, but have found it always siloed. So um, people's needs when they present are either truth and justice needs or counselling needs or social support needs. They're not seen as integrated needs and the whole person or a holistic approach to that. Um, and funding streams and um, how we talk about the past often reflect that. And women and how they experience that in particular um, would talk about that. You know, how can I go to an inquest court if I if I can't get my shopping finished in a day without crying? Things like that. So, you know, we were we were supporting people like that. And in 2010, so it's a good bit after um, 1325 was introduced, Hannah's House, which Catherine was also a member of, um, asked me to speak at a conference they had down in Dublin. Um, and it was like a light switching on. So I learned about 1325 and, you know, our organisation would be pretty savvy with human rights and the human rights environment. But 1325 hadn't come in our purview whatsoever. But once it did, it was like a light switch on for the organisation where we started to, you know, we had identified that there were gender specific harms, but now we were able to give them a framework within 1325. We were seeing that um, avenues for counselling and support were not just support needs or something somebody needed, but something somebody had a right to, and particularly women who had been so disadvantaged by the, by the conflict. Um, and then, you know, it, it completely complemented our approach in terms of a human rights based approach to recovery from the conflict. And, uh, and it was made it easier to sell as well, where sometimes if you raise women's issues or gender issues, there's a, there's a masculine debate that happens within our sector and it made it much easier for, um, for us to look at. So coming on from that, I suppose what we did was then we changed, we adapted our policy so that it kind of timed in with new peace pro programs that were coming on board. So peace three was being applied for at the time, and we were able to get a support worker to work on gender specific harms and to also get projects. So what we did was we, um, we did research into urban and rural needs of women who had been bereaved and injured as a result of the conflict. And we produced a report at the end of the three year programme called Dealing with the Past, Where Are the Women? Which identified that we've had this very uh, long standing um, and complex conversation on how we deal with our past that focuses in very much on Article 2 and um, the circumstances of how people were killed, who was responsible and how we might meet them. But we hadn't looked at the much wider perspective of, you know, if 91% of those killed in our conflict are men, that has an implication in terms of the number of women um, who, who survived and what 
what their experience would be from them and then how are they actually engaged in the processes of dealing with the past so you know we did that and then um, that raised for us that when we were doing future conversations or submissions on dealing with the past we always had a gender analysis to it um, and um, you know that for better or for worse you know it, it kind of it, it always depends on what's happening at the time but there's certainly always something there in terms of gender awareness and focus but the most important thing I think that happened was that our view of harm was broadened. So, you know, the debate on conflict harms almost exclusively on deaths, but in all of our approaches, if we can at least see other harms and begin to mention them, then we widen how we do our human rights-based work. And I think that's been the most successful part of um, us including 1325 in our work. We're logging them, we're mentioning them, and um, those women are now beginning to be seen. What women found, what we were told women found from the programme was that the opportunity there, it was an opportunity to be seen, it was an opportunity to be heard regarding their harms and they saw that as useful and that they weren't essentialised, they weren't just support receivers, they certainly weren't just being seen as, oh, women who survived, they're the peacemakers, maybe the women, the men were the actors to the conflict, they weren't essentialised that way, and they also weren't essentialised as victims, but they were advocates for their own rights, for their own experience in articulating those, and, you know, it's so much more empowering to say that I have a right to support needs, rather than saying, um, you know, I, I have support needs, can you give something to me in some sort of um, benefactoring kind of way. So, and it gave us also the space to mention uncomfortable things, such as domestic violence, such as the impact of having to take responsibilities in homes where um, if someone had been killed, Parental responsibility sometimes shifted to older siblings within a family. And there was, it gave the space also to talk about addictions, substance abuse, all of those issues that get mentioned sideways, kind of as an add-on. What this programme did was give them the focus that was needed, that they were also issues that, that were part of the experience of dealing with the past and were just as important in the life story of those women and in terms of their recovery. And I think that what that's done then is informed us as an organisation um, in our submissions that have been given um, since then on dealing with the past. You had the Hasso-Sullivan processes after that, you had Stormont House and of course the NIO consultation. And you do see a growing awareness around um, gender within all of that, though you wouldn't know it from the, any of the proposals or the consultation uh, recommendations that are given. So in terms of the limitations, um, I suppose the greatest limitation for us has been that no one really takes it all that seriously. You know, you're always given a fair wind um, and, you know, ah, oh, yeah, you'll talk about gender, but it isn't taken seriously. And the fact that it didn't make its way into any of the Stormont House proposals or it didn't make its way into the NIO consultation, despite extensive um, lobbying, Really, really tells its own story in terms of that, you know. And if even if you look at the political parties when they were giving their um, submissions, and you know, there's only one political party that mentions um, any form of gender awareness. Um, 
And I suppose dealing with the past is viewed as toxic. So there's a barrier in getting investigations into death and isn't that hard enough? So why are you going to make life even harder if you have women and you want to do things that, that kind of um, see women and analyze women's experiences? That's very difficult. So women have to wait. Let's get the rest of dealing with the past sorted. Women can wait in terms of all of that. And that's very much the approach. Um, and of course, you have the um, British governments looking externally for how they see uh, 1325. And while the Irish government has certainly given a nod to it, it hasn't been overly um, helpful, in, I think, in the third national action plan. And we might come back to that later on in terms of the protracted issues we, we deal with. So um, I suppose those limitations result in the Stormont House Agreement not mentioning gender, the NIO consultation not mentioning it at all. Um, and then you had a piece for approach to um, victims and survivors, which was useful in one respect, but again had no space for gender at all in it, um, or gender specifically. So when we lost our project worker to work on those issues specifically, and the project cost to look at that specifically, that had an impact. So um, the worker was kept on to look at other areas, but if you don't have the resources to specifically look at gender harms, record them, document them, and um, provide training externally, that has an impact as well. So women then go back to being niche, and you know you always having to put your hand up and say, "But what about women?" Um, in, in a room, and that can be very unhelpful and also tiring. For, the, for us as we're trying to do our work. If you're always the same person who's banging the same drum, um, it, it does two things. It, it's tiring on your morale, but it also, um, pain, when you're trying to speak to the wider issues, um, it, can, it can diminish you. Um, there's something that happens, there's a dynamic that happens within that, um, and that isn't helpful. Um, I suppose, you know, if you look at the limitations, we look at the um, Good Friday Agreement. Catherine mentioned there that 1325 comes in the year after the Good Friday Agreement. And yet, in all of the commemorations that happened with the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, you didn't see women apart from Monica McWilliams. Um, you know, you don't have a mention of women's participation and activism during that time either. Um, and that is really unfortunate. Um, in terms of what's needed, um, I suppose that issue about dedicated resources in the local transitional justice debate is absolutely essential. If you don't put aside a space for it and resources for it, it doesn't happen on its own. Um, we need to support women as advocates on their own experience and that it isn't displaced to somebody else. Um, so that women are seen and heard in all processes. Um, and that there, you know, that note is taken of additional harms with a view to acknowledging injustice, the full, and justice for the full complexion of harms. I think there has to be training. I think that we didn't get training right. What we've done is advocacy. What we've done is kind of raising the issue, but we never got to a stage where we could actually train um, at all levels. Um, you know, I think there's probably been much more at grassroots than there has at policy level. That gap is so noticeable which is interesting as a bottom-up um, a bottom-up resolution that just never got up. It, it stayed kind of at grassroots. Um, and, you know, I think that there does need to be a policy on the past. What, what this tells me overall is that a policy on the past has to look beyond how someone died and have intersectional approaches so that to a post-conflict society, we look at violence, of course, 
we look at the harms, we also look at poverty, we also look at mental health, and then we start to see women once we have that intersectionality without in any way diminishing the hard issues that transitional justice um, raises for us. So that's kind of like a gallop through what we've done. But I want to give special mention at the end to um, what Catherine spoke about in terms of the group that came up with um, proposals for um, a, for applying gender principles for dealing with the past. That brought together women from across the academic world and from across the um, across the victim sector, and it was very very unique. Um, and it should have really gained a lot of attention and I wonder why it didn't. I wonder if it was because it was women, I wonder if it was because it was legacy. I'm not sure why it didn't get the attention that it, it could have or should have, but it didn't make its way into, into the proposals from the NIO or the party's responses to that or that it didn't make its way into the Irish National Action Plan is really something that we need to think about in terms of our advocacy. Really, what more could women have done at that stage? But, you know, they were widely consulted, they were widely inputting into the processes and it wasn't taken on board. So there's, there's something that misses and, you know, I don't, I don't think it's grassroots women's fault. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Andre, for that really rich contribution. We're going to move now to Sophie Long. Dr. Sophie Long is a PhD from Queen's University Belfast in Ulster Loyalism. She's a former executive member of the Progressive Unionist Party. She's currently program officer at the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust, where she previously focused on their Northern Ireland program and now works at their Sustainable Future program. And she's going to, I know, talk more about JRCT and its work. Sophie, thank you very much for joining us. We're very pleased to have you and we look forward to your contribution. Right, to first just to say I lack the expertise of um, Andre and Bruna, so I can give a particular perspective. Um, and and I, I realise you put us together for for that reason, like, but um, but I lack the kind of, yeah, I can't speak as somebody who works for Relatives for Justice. Um, so, so I'd like to just say a couple of things. Um, Firstly, um, the organisation I work for now, um, JRCT, uh, we have a programme which is focused on Northern Ireland um, and I worked on that for uh, just over 18 months and I work on one of the UK programmes. But we, we've made a number of um, grants to try and not directly address 1325 related aspirations, but, but indirectly. Um, so I'll, I'll name some of the, the organisations there and I'll, I'll speak a little bit to our kind of program um program focus in that area because i think it's it's important and and jrct is a a quaker funder who've been around in northern ireland for for quite a long time and who have <clears throat> roots in kind of very um community facing like um service provision type work related to imprisonment around the conflict um so so our northern ireland program <clears throat> has four different goals. Um, one of them is around improving human rights and equality, which is obviously relevant. Uh, one of them is about developing a non-sectarian, more participatory form of politics in Northern Ireland. Um, one of them is about supporting processes of demilitarisation, and I think we're one of the few funders that kind of focus on that. And I want to speak a little bit more about militarisation in a second. 
Um, and then the fourth is about dealing with the past. And really what we're interested in is trying to promote or uncover a shared understanding of the root causes of the past violence, which I think is really important because almost every day on the radio or in uh, the local papers, we have quite superficial um, blame apportioning, which goes on. You know, I chose not to do that, you chose to do that. Um, I stayed in my house during the conflict, but the root causes are all kind of researchers of the conflict or for people who are involved or who work in those sectors. The root causes are much better frameworks for learning to understand each other and to develop kind of mechanisms to make sure that that it couldn't happen again. Um, and so, I mean, <clears throat> there are lots of different understandings of this, but for me, uh, some of the primary root causes were uh, class. It was a class conflict in many ways. Um, it was in some ways a kind of quasi-colonial um, struggle. Um, and there were different forms of militaristic masculinity which were invoked during the conflict, where young men were kind of called upon to save their people. And then the, and women in different ways were called upon to provide sometimes supporting roles, sometimes more often within Irish Republicanism, more active roles. Um, so uh, we make a number of grants to try and deal with that. And, and kind of under those four different policies, we say um, we're particularly interested in receiving applications related to women's participation in all these areas. Because we see gender as kind of, yeah, if you don't have a gendered lens for looking at security, at rebuilding, at thinking about the past, you're going to be missing something and your solutions aren't going to be um, uh, so we make a, a bunch of different grants, but in, in the women's sector, we support um, WRDA, so the Women's Resource and Development Agency, and supported them for a long time, and see them as really quite key in continually uh, calling upon different departments and ministers uh, to take women's needs into account when they're designing policy. Um, and that's still a necessary post the women's sector lobbyist. Um, we support the Northern Ireland Women's Europe Platform, uh, which is operating at a more European and, and international level than a lot of our grantees. Um, we did support uh, Women's Aid and their policy work. Um, we've made grants around gender budgeting, which is really important. Um, I think this is a quite a classic argument at the root of how to address gender inequalities as to whether or not you use a kind of difference conscious or difference approach and people who kind of are unwilling to think about gender whenever they're uh, drawing up um, public budgets uh, are of the kind of uh, difference blind um, camp. Um, we also make a number of grants around conflict prevention, which speaks a little bit to some of the aims of 1325, and that's to do with ongoing community-based um, violence. Um, so we make grants to organisations like the, um, the ACT initiative, which would have uh, connections to former UVF and Red Hand Commando uh, constituencies. And that's a sort of community level, almost like a micro version of DDR, and disarmament, um, demobilisation and reintegration. Um, make grants to organisations who can, in some ways, try and move along the non-aligned Republican 
groups, the non-mainstream Republican groups. Um, and we have made grants to organisations who would have contacts with um, more UDA-affiliated um, constituencies. Um, and the reason I think those grants are necessary and that work was sorry, was because um, after the Good Friday Agreement and even after um, 1325, there was no regional or national attempt to, to do any sort of DDR work. Um, so, so the kind of the structures and the identities and the aspirations and the kind of group, uh, the shared group, um, yeah, the shared group identity was kind of left there. So you had all of these different groups who still had security concerns of their own, um, trying to, some in some cases, demobilize themselves, in some cases, maintain like a watching brief. Um, and therefore that culture of violence was nudged out of the public sphere. So we were able to say the security situation in Northern Ireland has broadly improved because the public sphere is safer. So we had rebuilding in the city centre, we had foreign direct investment, um, you know, shops and restaurants were transformed. Belfast was a, a popular tourist destination. So the public sphere, if that's how we conceive of security, um, was post-conflict. However, because of the absence of DDR and a proper examination of the gender and class dimensions of the conflict, then actual security from a feminist perspective in the private sphere um, wasn't drastically improved. Um, so all of that trauma from doing harm, which a lot of men carried and some women carried, was um, yeah, the third sector had to pick up trying to heal that, trying to get people to talk about how it felt to have done those things and how they were supposed to be loving in relationships now or how they're supposed to deal with community um, problems now. Um, and so I think I think that's one of the kind of main feelings as to how we've taken, as to how we've combined our um, processes of but a gender sensitive, gender conscious form of peace. Um, and we've kind of ended up quite comfortable with this idea that there were a handful or more of quite bad men and they went to prison and then they came back and eventually they'll kind of go away. But, you know, <laughs> those men were supported by communities and ideologies. Um, and there are organisations doing pieces of work to try and then figure out, right, uh, what was that about? What's our focus now? How can we provide the sort of care that the communities need in this new era in a non-violent way? And you can kind of see in the COVID response in Northern Ireland, a lot of those groups have kind of found their place. Um, and I think, I think for, for a lot of them that they were ultimately being starved of recognition that they'd made that transition in some way. Um, and that they're maybe they're maybe finding it a little bit easier now to participate, um, and so so yeah so so the absence of, of DDR has been has been quite difficult. Um, in terms of like the, the overarching goal of making sure that women are active participants in shaping 
um, peace building and rebuilding processes in Northern Ireland. Um, the, the kind of I've seen very little evidence that they are welcomed um, into that, but I think partially that's because we haven't actually deconstructed any of the the kind of patriarchal value systems that we went into the conflict with, and so there seemed to be an informal deal done where um, a lot of men from both sides got, you know positions where they could have decent jobs or sometimes enter politics in some ways and um, felt meaningful and then women were like in a kind of second tier or third tier where they could do sort of caring work at community level like kind of the work that you would perform in the home gendered work but at community level um, and there have been improvements for women's um, safety as a result of the the peace process but I think they've been kind of like indirect I don't think they were intended so so when Monica McWilliams with Jessica Doyle repeated the study into the connection between intimate partner violence um, and armed conflict so the original was done was it was it 94 ish maybe and then it was repeated in 17 or so I think those are roughly right um, they find that the fact that Northern Ireland was, as per conventional understandings, more secure. There were less bombs, there were less shootings, there was less uh, conflict between armed groups. Uh, that women were slightly safer in their homes. But that was because of, of stuff like, you know, so I think, you know, uh, women were stuff like, when my partner, when my partner's annoyed at me now, he can't threaten to go upstairs and get a gun because of decommissioning, so he doesn't have a gun. So that's changed. I feel slightly safer. Um, less men were using membership of prescribed organisations as a means of intimidating their partners. So it's not just an individual man threatening you, but it's a man with the weight of a an armed group behind him and whatever that might mean. Those things came about because we made decisions to try and make Northern Ireland as a state entity more secure and safer. We weren't trying to improve the conditions for women in the home. And in the, in the study, I think they said, that, you know, with the police, it still depends on whether or not you get a sympathetic police officer who cares about domestic violence, who has the time to follow up with you. And the same with GPs, um, they might not necessarily uh, take your concerns seriously or they might not necessarily ask the right questions when a woman presents with different issues which are clearly linked to DV. Um, so I think that um, yeah our focus has been on that very traditional rebuilding make Northern Ireland an attractive entity a destination for investment and for other people to come to but we haven't quite um, we haven't quite like sanitized women's safety and if we did centralise women's safety there's there's so much evidence to show that everything else would flow from that you know if we made sure that young girls could not only get a decent education where they could follow whatever um, appeal to them most where they could be safe from uh, the threat of sexual violence where they could make their own reproductive choices then the rest of society flourish in turn um, 
but instead we kind of yeah we, we did everything in in too much of a kind of gender blind way um and now as andre pointed out when we're celebrating the great achievement of you know 20 years of peace someone thinks at the end oh god we better ask a woman what woman will we get oh, we'll get monica like she she's a kind of symbol of the peace process that's great but yeah and, and so therefore we still divide up the idea of uh peace building so we've got these kind of men who are responsible for the peace process and uh the women's sector so the women's sector do great stuff they take those women away and those women are damaged and they talk to them and and they'll improve their skills and might be able to get a wee job somewhere but the they're the, they're the same in the women's sector were doing peace building from the start and they're still doing peace building now it's just not recognized as such um so yeah i just think i think and finally we could have a really like interesting piece of learning from this about the fact that women were active agents in the conflicts in the conflict as well um they weren't just kind of watching sadly on as men became embroiled in it and that could teach us something about the processes of of becoming comfortable with violence so like what led to that because we could then shift our thinking away from the fact that these were a few monstrous men who we can now kind of nudge out and that if women were engaged in violence too and supported violence too um you know what does that mean about the conditions that lead to that when we're comfortable with that as a society um, and therefore, who do we need to have included when we're designing a society that is free from violence? Um, but yeah, I'll leave there. Great. Um, thank you very much, Sophie. And, um, I know you had to make extraordinary efforts to join us there today, so thank you for that, Sue. Um, we'll move on to the final speaker now, uh, Brona Hines. Brona is a senior associate of democracy. Um, she was very involved in the peace process here in the north around the agreement and now she works more internationally as a consultant for UN Women on Women, Peace and Security and also uh, as an advisor and consultant for the Irish government. Um, so Brona, thank you for joining us and we're looking forward to hearing your contribution. Okay, Catherine, and it was so interesting listening to Andrea and Sophie and uh, so much of it chimed with what I was going to say. Um, Mind you, um, I'm a lot longer in the tooth than both of, of these young women. Um, so um, I have a lot to learn and a lot to take on board from younger women coming forward now and, and challenging on some of the things that we did right and we did wrong and uh, we could do so much better uh, in future. And I find that in, in my current work, uh, working particularly uh, on Syria. I just want to pick up uh, one of the points uh, actually that I that I heard in Sophie, Sophie's and that is also behind in Andrea's. Um, women in Northern and what, what you also said at the beginning, Catherine, women in Northern Ireland actually have developed an awareness, maybe more than women in other places, on the international dimensions and in women, peace and security. And I think um, it's not, it, I mean, we need to say that at the time the Women's Coalition was formed on the peace agreement, there was no Women, Peace and Security resolutions. And yet we were getting active from the 1970s. Uh, I remember um, international conferences in, in the middle of the 1990s, um, uh, managing to get a platform, women managing to get a platform, making joint statements from women in Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland 
on, on the ceasefires and pledging commitment to a transition to stable peace and um, really trying to draw attention to the issue and the absence of women's voices. And also the Beijing Platform for Action, uh, which was the first opportunity for women, for a large delegation of women from across Northern Ireland to participate in a major international conference, something like 15 or 16 women. Um, um, and people saved up and did fundraisers to actually participate inter internationally. And what women there were actually saying uh, that here women have done a lot of development work in their own communities in solidarity with women from other communities, working on equality, rights and justice, creating spaces for dialogue, networking across religious and political divides, and seeing themselves as agents for change, not just as pacifiers. And I think we have that historically, and that was recognised in, in the Opsal Commission, um, uh, when, um, which said that women have a lot to offer to the political system and to the search for a peaceful settlement in, in 1992. And I think we should remember when the Women's Coalition was formed, it's certainly my view, though I, I am always very cautious about how I say this internationally when I'm working with other women which don't have the growth of grassroots civil society and women's groups as we have had since the 1970s. But I don't think we would have been able to have done the Women's Coalition in such a short period of time without all of those women at the grassroots uh, who came together to actually form the Women's Coalition, whether it was community groups, trade unions, some women from the business sector, whatever. But what we were dealing with was a history of women's exclusion and invisibility at all levels. So if we push that forward, I think it's important. One of the conferences that I was at, um, and, and it was news to me, someone came up to me and said, you know, we looked at what happened in Northern Ireland and in some ways we were we were arguing for women, peace and security resolutions for many, many years. And Naiwe was one of those working at international level for that at that time with great groups like the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom and others. Um, and someone came up to me, um, somebody who'd been instrumental and said, you know, we got a lot of inspiration from the women in Northern Ireland and they're working for peace and the Women's Coalition and how women's groups came together. Uh, and I think we need to recognise that. What we also need to recognise is some of what both Sophie and Andrea said is the peace agreement was not shaped in women's image. And I am saying clearly here, one of the things that we, we helped the process, we tried to change the dynamic. Uh, we had particular agendas. Uh, we thought we were looking for a lot and actually we actually didn't include nearly anything enough. And I suppose one of the lessons that we have from that time, and that's even being in touch with people on the ground, one of the lessons I always say is that when I talk to others, look at what you want, multiply it by 10, double it and double it again, and women are still not asking for enough. So I think that's clearly one of the things that we need to think of. In terms of um, more specifically post, um, the, the beginning of the resolutions. Democracy, we have focused particularly on the participation agenda, both the political participation, and I, I, it was very difficult in the early stages to raise money for it because people thought 
I was completely out of my mind. I had a, an American partner and we were raising money to, to fund political training for women in all political parties, unionists and nationalists, but also pro-agreement and anti-agreement parties. And that was just unheard of at that time. Um, and, and, and we built that because if you believe in the policy and tool of inclusion, it has to be inclusion of everyone. It's a bit like Sophie would say, working with groups people not, might not want to work with. It's really important that people are included. We don't always have to agree and sometimes it has to be, be challenged. Also building women's capacity um, in, in leadership in NGOs, in trade unions and business. I remember uh, one woman from a trade union uh, on one of the programs finally said she'd been working for a long time and it hadn't occurred to her to actually put herself forward to be general secretary of that union. But actually it was important to get the support of other women and the capacity building to say, I'm gonna have a go at that and, and to actually uh, become that leader. Working in women and local councils with the local government staff commission to empower women at senior officer level and uh, uh, women councillors leading to a completely different dynamic in local government now where there are many more women in leadership provision, uh, positions than there, than there were previously and pulling that forward on to working with um, female, uh, with, with uh, building, continuing to build a political and leadership capacity. Most recently, um, a big programme across Northern Ireland and the southern border counties on uh, empowering women's public leadership and women as champions of, of peace building funded by the great uh, European Union peace funds and um, uh, run out of the assembly with uh, uh, Irish Rural Link and uh, Northern Ireland Council for Voluntary Action. There's also the issue about lesson sharing uh, and I referred to that uh, there in, 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 in working and one of the greatest lessons is when, from our time is we never ask for enough and it's about empowering and supporting women to ask uh, for more and more. But a lot of lesson sharing on women, peace and security uh, from Northern Ireland, Timor-Leste, Liberia, Ireland, Northern Ireland, uh, Syria, Bosnia, South Korea, Iraq, Colombia, Cyprus, elsewhere. But one of the things I think is important in that, uh, and this is a lesson that I think we can take, it's almost like we stand side by side in solidarity with other women who have been in a conflict. So I find that when I am working, what, I'm, what I get is so much back in terms of learning, not just about other situations, but other things that can be applied to our own situation. And also people are elsewhere are more willing to look at things and find resonances if it's someone from another conflict situation. Uh, so I think even though we have a lot of women's networks, creating as an extra tool a lot more solidarity between women in conflict, uh, I think uh, might be uh, very useful. Some kind of increased networking that women who have actually been involved in peace processes or on grassroots um, peace building uh, at local level, because one doesn't go without the other. I mean, obviously, the great piece of work that the Women's Resource and Development Agency and the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland did um, not so long ago on a women and peace building project that engaged over a thousand women across Northern Ireland and the border counties in the Republic of Ireland. 
uh, and then try to feed from that into various peace uh, negotiations. Um, out of that, uh, just to say, a piece of work uh, that I was involved in with my colleague Debbie Donnelly was specifically focusing on how much knowledge, and this has been mentioned by Andrea and Sophie, how much knowledge is known by policymakers and politicians around women's security, because a lot of women in the women's sector are, you know, are, are beginning to have that knowledge and disseminate it uh, with other women. So we did a piece of research to understand uh, how the public sector understood women, peace and security and followed that up with producing a toolkit on women, peace and security, uh, which I'll, I'll come back to in a moment. I also want to refer to the point that Andrea made about the National Action Plan for Ireland's uh, uh, women, peace and security. It's really important because it's really the only plan that mentions Northern Ireland. And I can completely associate with the frustration of what is and isn't in there and the challenges of the interjurisdictional politics here that makes it quite difficult. Um, but certainly I've seen a movement from kind of lip service in the first National Action Plan through the second National Action Plan to greater uh, attention in the third National Action Plan. And I think we need to kind of widen that more in terms of its uh, application. Briefly about limitations, and then I'd rather speak mainly about, about tools and opportunities. Of course, there's a lack of application and follow through by member states on national action plans and women, peace and security. There's a complete failure to prioritise women, peace and security, which is evident in the lack of attention, lack of data collection, lack of financial allocations. What is measured and what gets funded is what matters in a society. And we are not there yet internationally or in our own situations on women, peace and security. There's a complete lack of accountability and Catherine and Ashley Swain has referred to this in some of their work and I'll come back to that. And there's a lack of application in many national action plans to integrate the thinking around women, peace and security alongside women's rights and gender equality in domestic situations as well as foreign policy. Uh, the Irish government does it. It has more to do on that. Uh, but specifically for Northern Ireland, the absence, as Catherine has referred to, of reference to Northern Ireland in the UK National Action Plan is, 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 uh, is actually unspeakable. It's unspeakable. And we have had many efforts I remember years ago chairing a round table for the Ireland Women's European Platform where they'd managed to get the Ministry of Defence, the Department of For the um uh, Office the Foreign Foreign Affairs, UK Foreign Affairs, DFID, Department of International Development, and Northern Ireland Government Departments. Peter Hayne was there. Um uh, a round table looking at peace and security and work in terms of their shadow reports of women consistently uh, into um, uh, reporting for CEDAW, uh, really it, we haven't been able to move much further on on getting attention uh, uh, to Northern Ireland. So here are some of the tools and, and opportunities that I think we should be looking at moving forward. First of all, 
there is an opportunity in Ireland not, and I think we should uh, use the, the very fresh opportunity that has been happening this time, which is the Northern Ireland Advisory Group on this, first time it's happened, and we should see how we extend that, how we feed into that, and bring forward other voices that are not being heard. Secondly, that toolkit that I referred to, the issue, um, there is a, it's a delicate issue around what is be, why the UK government will not include Northern Ireland and understanding of a conflict or is actually taking sides on how it defines the conflict in Northern Ireland. I think what women want is some progress. You know, they want progress, they don't want looking back. So the toolkit uh, which was produced was very well received and is still a model around which we could develop a regional action plan on women, peace and security in Northern Ireland in the absence of a UK national action plan that will allow us to actually fulfil the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, which is not just East-West but North-South. If the Irish plan mentions Northern Ireland, we need to be putting pressure on our executive. And it got the, the, the toolkit got support from ministers at the beginning. We need to actually try and come up with some regional way of actually squaring that to support our peace process and support developments for women. I think we must bring multiple tools to bear on achieving women's rights and gender equality and interchange the terms gender equality and women, peace and security in dialogues with politicians and public service, because as both Andrea and Sophia said, we need to develop greater women, women, peace and security awareness and training among policymakers and programme deliverers across the public sector in Northern Ireland. We could work with NIWEP, who is the Secretariat to the Assembly's All-Party Group on Women, Peace and Security, and see how we could actually build our own monitoring mechanism here. How could we actually join with that to have a civil society and that group as a monitoring mechanism and, and galvanise our own AGO, NGOs around regular reporting on these issues. And I think whether or not we get it, we should be insisting that the Northern Ireland Executive and the UK consult with women in Northern Ireland on women, peace and security prior to the government's CEDAW re reporting. We can use the Women's Policy Group, our great Women's Policy Group and NIWEP as the coordinator of women's international work in Northern Ireland very effectively in these issues. The second tools are around greater monitoring, reporting and accountability. The UN Secretary General has made clear that implementations proceeded too slowly, results have been inadequate, and he drew attention to the failure to back commitments with the requisite financial and political support. We really need honest member state reporting at the annual UN Security Council debates, and we should be putting pressure on the, the UK government as well as the Irish government in their reports. Now, I have to say that at the last UK Security Council debate at which I was at, the, the Irish government and several other governments had obviously made a pact that they were going to be much more honest about the lack of progress that had been made rather than stand up as what had happened previously and say, we've done this well and we've done that well and we've done the other thing well. We really, really need to encourage uh, more of that. We need to add more pressure to participation in high-level discussions and peace negotiations. We need to be asking for strict application of quotas to negotiating delegations 
and we need to restructure. And this speaks to the heart of Sophie's point about who has the conversation about resolving the conflict and building the peace, restructuring negotiations to include those beyond political actors and civil society. In the Syria example, the UN tried every effort to get more women into the negotiations and continue to do so. Not being able to get them into the delegations, they set up a Syrian Women's Advisory Board. They now have 30% women in an independent sector within a constitutional committee. We need to be adding pressure to make sure that continues to happen. Something that Catherine and Ashleen uh, Swain have argued for is greater complementarity between the CEDAW committee as an institution of the human rights system and the UN Secretary General. So we need to be building in accountability through the human rights mechanisms for women, peace and security. Greater use of CEDAW, universal periodic review. We have seen how using the international mechanisms with our domestic mechanisms have made a difference in Northern Ireland. Look at the Rapporteur on Violence Against Women, the Rapporteur on Women's Reproductive Rights, just to mention uh, uh, but two. So we need, to be, we need to be doing that. We might also encourage Ireland to report, now that we are in the NAP, to report on women, peace and security in Northern Ireland as well as lobbying the government to report on that in CEDAW reporting. I couldn't agree more. My third point is on budgeting and finance. I couldn't agree more with Sophie. Funding for the women's sector is paltry in Northern Ireland, and this extends to the policies and programmes that are priorities for women. Andrea, different and better decisions in other places, such as Wales in relation to childcare. Northern Ireland is not alone in this. Funding for programmes that promote gender equality and women's empowerment in conflict-effective countries is just 5% of total bilateral aid to such countries. I repeat, what gets funded is a measure of what matters. So we need to forget embarrassment and be bolder about challenging any dismissal, spoken or unspoken of, these are just women's issues or women's perspectives. We need also to give more examples and of models on why these are, what these perspectives are and why they matter. For example, the Women's Budget Group and the Women's Policy Group took action on COVID-19 furloughing, which affected women's qualification for statutory maternity pay, and managed to get a change in that at quick order notice. There are also the gender aspects of continuing paramilitary control in local areas, more than 20 years after the peace agreement, as spoken about uh, by women in the, the CFNI uh, WRDA Women and Peace Building Project. So the women's budget group, as Sophie has referred to, as well as the women's policy group, are great tools that we can use together. And the last thing um, that I want to mention was also mentioned by Sophie, was actually the militarization. To a conference some years ago now, where women were addressing the women's peace and security perspectives, gender perspectives, but they were focusing on the military and security. 
And we need to take on this militarization and demilitarization aspects. First of all, we need to get reliable and accessible data on women's human rights abuses. And women can be agents for change in engaging in action and research in relation to the military security issues. This has local and international implications. Sophie described coming up with a different kind of peace, but there is a big debate and there had been pushed several years ago. Actually, some of it led by some Irish ambassadors to the UN around um, thinking about uh, sustainable development goals, thinking about women, peace and security, refugee and asylum seekers, uh, human security issues and how they are all brought together. There is a movement by some progressive member states into how we change the notion of security from militarization into the core of it being about human security, which actually is a good entry point for preventing conflict if we're dealing with human security, but also how we see the future of society and how we design the future of society. The Women in Peacebuilding Project did work uh, with women on paramilitaries. We see the role that women here played on the first district policing partnerships, get, getting those up and running, 50-50 members of those in terms of trying to demilitarize our society. Policing and security are issues for women and it's important to link the women's peace and security, human security and sustainable development to transform peace and security in the widest sense. We may not go far as Sweden's uh, feminist foreign policy yet. So it was a more gender conscious form of peace and human security. I was asking the question about what in your view is the value, the specific value of the UN Security Council being the sort of institution that it is um, adopting the, the WPS agenda, the Women, Peace and Security agenda. I suppose it's about where it sits, right? So, um, you know, it's it's almost like it's an unlikely place to hear about gender equality and the issues of women who've been harmed and um, who have raised this issue and created um, a framework for all of um, those who are interested to participate in it. So, you know, and to that, you know, you have the UK as a permanent member on it it makes it useful because you can say, well, here, here's this form of a um, potential remedy for women um, in this place that you take very seriously and just about most member states take very seriously as well. So it's useful from the point of view that it isn't something we've come up with or that it's kind of, you know, it's seen as something that's very high level. So it's, it, it's useful from that point of view. But then because mm -hmm. I suppose um, the unique nature of our of our conflict resolution process hasn't included the UN or um, the you know the Security Council as such. Um, you know we they're not visible. The, U, the UN hasn't been visible during our peace process, so there's a limitation to it in anything other than bargaining. I think that's that's interesting. Yeah, and of course, I mean, important to bring out that tension between this UK as a permanent member of the Security Council, but also declining to adopt the resolution here. Yeah. Um, Bruno, you, you work internationally on these issues as well. I mean, have you a view on what's the specific value of the UN Security Council adopting the agenda? Well, 
because it's I think the problem is 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 not that the Women, Peace and Security Council um, with WPS agenda, uh, what's the value of adopting it by the UN Security Council? The issue is that the UN Security Council actually needs to be transformed in itself. I think that's one of the big challenges and way above our pay grades, as it were. Um, but um, and, and I think uh, Andrea made the point about the UK being a permanent member, and there's an issue about the, the most people seem most stuck in their ways are the permanent members, and I mean all of them, not just you know, not not just one permanent member. So changing that. And actually, I thought it was rather unfortunate that the three members running from uh, the North American and European region this year, can, uh, Canada, Norway, and, and Ireland, all have a progressive agenda on this issue. It would be great if they were all on at the same time with, with some others. Um, I do think it's a value. I mean, I, I mean, we wouldn't have been working so hard to get women, peace, and security on the agenda. Um, had it had the UN Security Council not been important, it is one of the most important elements in the UN structure, and actually managing to get it through that structure, uh, and and getting numbers of resolutions th uh, uh, through the UN Security Council, I think is important. And I don't think that we should forget two other things, uh, or three other things. One is that. Elements of those Security Council resolutions have then been adopted into other resolutions that are not strictly straightforward, the Women, Peace and Security resolution. So they've gone into military resolutions for military forces and peacekeeping and other things. And what I'm hearing is it'll take some time to change that. But for example, where people are expected to take orders in a military situation, you know, some of these issues are being checked out in terms of the military and security situation. So I think it's where it also feeds into to other aspects. The last thing I wanted to say was, um, sometimes what we haven't used well is the UN General Assembly, which meets on a regular basis. And um, I know that uh, certainly when I'm working with the Syrian women, you know, there are often delegations of women go when the General Assembly is meeting to lobby, to hold meetings, and to do all of that kind of thing. And in Northern Ireland, we tend to focus on, okay, this is happening at the Security Council, and then there's CEDAW, and then there's the human rights reporting, and maybe we ought to think how we broaden that. That's also linked to the fact that our work on women, peace and security, and in Northern Ireland on gender equality generally is under-resourced, but, but there are ways of doing that and finding partnerships to do that. Thank you. Um, I have two related questions here that have come in. Um, one is about what is asking who is being left behind in in Northern Ireland when we talk about quote unquote women's issues. And the second one, um, which is related, I think, is what um, what are the current areas that could usefully be researched to help implementation of 1325 in, in here in the north. So who's been left behind? What are the kind of research gaps around this 1325 implementation? Um, Andre, do you want to? Well, in terms of being who's being left behind, I mean, you know, 
that's almost like a question for the entire peace process. So you look at, um, you know, the Good Friday Agreement and the the rewards that have come from a peace that and a peace agreement that has been in place since 1998. And then you ask who's been left behind and and overwhelmingly the reports that are coming forward are levels of poverty haven't gone down the way you would have expected. The same constituencies that were um, facing economic deprivation, structural deprivation, and multiple levers, levels of, um, uh, of, of different disadvantage are the same people who faced those in 1998. So somehow, the, you know, we've, we've managed to sustain a peace and we have undoubtedly managed to create a new economic environment but those issues of uh, um, those issues that we see, I mean, we see it in the news. You know, the high levels of mental health, um, mental ill health. We see levels, the levels of um, poverty, the levels of um, education achievement, just not being where we would have thought they would have been at this stage in a peace process. So we see all of that in the areas that were disproportionately affected by conflict. So the highest levels of killings and injuries and imprisonments all happened within the exact same constituencies where you're seeing those very stubborn levels of poverty and mental ill health. So, you know, who's being left behind? The exact same people that probably were, um, weren't included at the time. So, you know, then you have to ask questions about at the time of building the peace process, some of the most important work that was being done was at that stage um, being done by NIPT, then CFNI, the peace programmes, really reaching into those areas that were most disadvantaged. You see that that funding, that that structural awareness of, um, in, of wanting inclusivity, of wanting participation, just kind of falling back and falling back over the years, and yet those needs remain. So, and you know, the experience of women affected by conflict is absolutely affected by all of those issues, because we cannot talk about uh, women, peace and security and ignore the high, the high levels of ill health, the high levels of mental distress, the high levels of poverty. They all feed into it in, in, in the most comprehensive of ways. And that feeds into then the areas of research um, we're, we're really lousy at, at intersectionality. We, we do so much siloed research and rather than joining up the research that's there. So we see research that's done on victims um, and survivors and levels of PTSD, but we don't see the read across to the levels of poverty and the, le and the levels of um, education, education achievement. And, you know, that I think that those kind of that's exactly what WPS um, directs us toward creating intersectionality, noticing ranges of harms, and noticing that one policy needs to affect the next policy. Brilliant. Thank you, Andre. Uh, Broda, on those two questions. Um, well, I, yeah, no, I fully agree with what Andrea yeah. has said. Um, I, which also I don't know if it's feeding the current data, it could be researched, but I mean, we are seriously deficient in our data collection and descent, uh, I think, in Northern Ireland. And actually, you saw it uh, areas uh, as well. Um, we cannot do equality under the peace agreement unless we are actually 
um, doing that a breakdown as to the impacts on the different on, of policies on the different groups in society, and we are not doing that effectively enough or engaging those groups effectively in of those debates. I'm seeing it in the way that Andreas talked about the intersectionality. You know, there's a big issue around, oh, women are just one of the groups. And, yeah. and what we really need to say is women are in all of the groups and we need to be overlaying men and women and other sexual genders across all of the groups and all of the disadvantages. And we really haven't come to the ability to do that. Obviously, the poverty and deprivation, the mental health and suicide levels, um, the investment in trauma, but even just the simple things for women. I mean, short, absolutely, it is. I mean, I've been talking about childcare since the 1970s. It is unfathomable that we have not sorted out childcare. I'm doing research some years ago for the WRDA on, on the economic impacts on women of the recession. And people are going home, two parents paying childcare for two children and having to spend a week of a month living with their parents because then they don't have enough money. You know, we are not actually prioritizing, like Wales has done, prioritize childcare as an economic driver, for example. And, and, and so that, but I really think that we need to talk about two specific things. First of all, and, and more research could go into this one, is how much is demilitarization and paramilitarization moving on? And who are the gatekeepers in local communities? Because people talk around what we are hearing for women, and it's worse in some areas than in others, that they go to the normal same people, and women who were leading stuff have been displaced by men, and some of them with a paramilitary background. We, you know, that is putting a lot of fear a lot of fear on, on people to speak out and address that. So that, that more work needs to do in that. And of course, the victims of violence, the victims of violence. And we need to get away with this stuff about, from this stuff of hierarchy of victims. And we need to actually be looking at the severe trauma mental health and the lack of support that has been done at multiple levels to people who have suffered and some suffered more greatly than other, others in terms of um, victims of having lost, lost people. And we really need um, to ensure that provision. Um, would a minister for women help? Yes. Yes, it would help. It would help. Um, but um, I'd say there'd be very little political um, kind of I, I certainly haven't heard a single political party talk about something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you do hear um, plenty from some parties about wanting to see um, greater equality and wanting to, be, to have better participation from women. And some parties are better on that than others. Um, but what we're not seeing, what I think overall would certainly help was mainstreaming the idea of a gender lens to public policy and particularly on those transitional issues where there hasn't been any. So, you know, there's, there's, and there has been no attempt to either. There's been, I'm, as from what I know at any of the negotiating tables, there, there is no attempt to do that. Rona mentioned the Lord Chief Justice and, and even around inquests. There's absolutely no approach even from that department around ensuring um, effective participation from, you know, from women, even though overwhelmingly the next of kin on those documents will be women. Um, and 
and sometimes it's a lack of awareness and sometimes it's a real sense of well yeah that's a good idea but i don't know how to do it and the, you know i think if you were to set up a framework within and i do think it has to be a policy level within stormont whether it's a minister or some or something that is much more committee based that was about policy development that ensured effective participation and ensured effective um idea making as well you know coming up with how do you do that being really practical around that and that would take advice you know an advisory committee and of course it would take expertise doing that but there needs to be a will to do that in a sense of you know that is really possible and would cost very little money to do that and that's the thing that can be really frustrating and um, having awareness ensuring participation doesn't necessarily cost very much money other than the initial resource um and you know it, but you know it being grown has added an, an awfully long time and i'm at it a short a relatively short amount of time it, having impact is really really tough we're not making any impact at the minute yeah. okay well i think that's a sobering note on which to conclude <laughs> it's um, probably a realistic one um, I want to just uh, thank you so much. Thank you, um, Audrey Murphy and Bruna Hines and Sophie, who I'm afraid we lost through technical issues there a little while ago. Um, thank you so much for the very rich contributions. Um, thank you to all our participants. I know there were some questions came in at the end there that unfortunately um, we couldn't get to, but I will I will share them onwards with the panel. And um, thank you for your uh, attention. And yes, we will, um, subject to the speakers being okay with everything,